0: I was going to begin this morning by asking, how many country music fans do we have here? But I know that there's a bunch of Wagger relatives, and I'm assuming a lot of you are country music fans. Am I correct, or is it just Sonia? Just Sonia? Okay. So, do we, not many country music fans here? Show of hands, you like country music? Okay, I just, I just got to be careful what I say, knowing that there's enough country music fans. We were at a wedding a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we had a blast, Allison and I. We stayed right to the very end. In fact, the uh, DJ was uh, loading his equipment up when we left. And uh, lots of friends and relatives that uh, were at this wedding, and they were some of them were bugging me afterwards about, Brent, why were you not out on the dance floor? And so I had to think of excuses. I tried to say I didn't want to show people up, and they didn't buy that. And the uh, wedding was in an over 100-year-old barn that had been... Redone specifically for this wedding, and the dance was on the second floor. So I tried to say I was a little concerned that floorboards might not hold my dancing ability, but they didn't really buy that. So I had to be honest. The bride was wearing cowboy boots, and uh, it was mainly country music. And uh, some of the first dances she got on the floor and she was stomping her feet. And I said, You know what? Country music scares me, and uh, I'm just intimidated by country music. And uh, so that's why I chose not to dance. They didn't really buy that either, but I was thinking about the fact I'm not a real big country music fan, but there's one thing about country music uh, that they uh, are number one compared to any other genre of music, and that is that country music has some of the best song titles. Uh, going. And in fact, I brought some of the song titles with me just to, to share how clever. I don't even know what the significance is of some of these uh, titles, but maybe you'll recognize, uh, you country music fans anyways, some of these songs as your favorites. Uh, of course, there's the all-time favorite, May the Bird of Paradise Fly Up Your Nose. Uh, you Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. This is one of my favorites. Thank God and Greyhound, She's Gone. I've got the hungries for your love and I'm waiting in your welfare line. Song made famous by Buck Owens. Uh, Here's a good one. How can I miss you if you won't go away? (laughs) Another classic. I keep forgetting, I forgot about you. If the phone don't ring, baby, you'll know it's me. And this one here. I I liked you better before I knew you so well. Some some real classic uh, country music titles. But there is one title of a country music song. And it's actually the, the the hook line in the song that really is profound and significant. And It's a song that was written by George Jones. And I'm not a real big George Jones fan, but if you like the old style country music, you'd know George Jones. A lot of his songs are about drinking and cheating, and that's kind of what made him famous and uh, true to... Some of his lyrics about uh, 15, 16 years ago, George Jones was drunk, crashed his vehicle into a bridge down in Tennessee, and and was pretty near dead. But he he did recover, and a few months later released another album, and the the album title was uh, Cold Hard Truth. And uh, the specific song I'm thinking about that was on the album was a song simply called Choices. And the hook line in the song was this: I'm living, and I'm dying by the choices I've made. And this morning what I want to talk about is choices. And life is filled with choices. Uh, We've made a whole bunch of choices today, whether we realized it or not. We chose to come. We chose what to wear. We chose what to have for breakfast. A lot of choices in life are simple. Uh, A lot of choices we don't even think about making. Some choices are made for us. That we choose what cell phone we use. We choose... Who's going to be our friends? We choose where we're going to invest our time and our energy. Uh, Some choices in life are simple and, and rather inconsequential. Other choices in life are really important and have great consequences. Choices in life are necessary. If we have difficulty with choices, if we have difficulty making choices very good chance we'll have difficulty in life. Well, this morning I want to talk about a a very specific choice, and that is the choice that you and the choice that I have made as it pertains to God. Last week we began a new series. It's a, a very intentional summer series in that each week can be a standalone sermon. And and what myself and Ben and those who are going to participate this summer are doing are just sharing verses and passages uh, from Scripture that have been very significant to us over the years. And and the passage that I'm thinking about specifically uh, is a passage that came to mind when I was challenged on the spot over 30 years ago about whether I was going to be serious or not about my choice, about my commitment in my relationship with God. It's hard to believe that it was, it was over 30 years ago. It was my first year of university, and I'd chosen to get involved in the University Christian Fellowship Group. Uh, and uh, I met with some of the executive uh, on campus, uh, and they said we were going to have a prayer gathering and I was wondering, well, what room are we going to be praying in? Hopefully we'll be tucked away somewhere on campus. And and they, they, they told me that we were going to pray at a picnic table right by the main entrance to the Scarborough campus of the University of Toronto. And I, I'd never done something like that. That was really out there uh, for me to pray there. And so I went and I sat at the table and we shared and we were praying and I had one eye open and one eye closed looking for who might come by that might know me when my greatest fear was realized. A good friend of mine from high school I'd played a lot of sports with, super popular guy, big partier, great athlete, represented everything about peer pressure, represented everything about partying. Walking up towards the front door of the school and he sees me sitting at the picnic table and veers off the path and starts walking towards the picnic table. I'm going, Lord, please help him just to walk by. Help him not to notice me. And as he's walking towards me, a phrase from Scripture that I don't remember memorizing, but probably because I grew up in the church, I heard over and over and over again, was ringing in the back of my head. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. And Rick is walking towards me, Choose this day whom you will serve. And he did what I hope he wasn't going to do. And my nickname for those who played sports with me was Bent. And he said, Bent, what are you doing? Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Peer pressure, acceptance, approval. Or do I stay true to what I was planning on doing? What was I going to do concerning my choice for God? And I throw that question out to you at the outset this morning. What are you doing about your choice for God? And I realized back then, there's all sorts of people who would have excused me for not dealing with that question, that choice, choose this day whom you're going to serve. I was just starting university. Somewhere someone came up with the idea that even for church kids, Going to university, you know, sow a few of the wild oats. Hopefully, learn from your mistakes. Somewhere along the line, probably near the end of university, hope, hopefully, our our kid will make a, a choice for God. And so I know a lot of people would have excused me if I said, Nah, I'm going to go with the guy that said, Ben, what are you doing? And as I was thinking about that, Scenario at the picnic bench at this Scarborough campus, University of Toronto. It's hard to believe it was over 30 years ago. And I could have been excused for for the three years of university. Then I started a new job, a career. And I probably would have been excused by all sorts of people. You don't have to get serious about God yet. You're just starting a career. And soon after that... I met Allison and we started dating and, and we got married and I'm sure all sorts of people would have you just newly married. You don't have to be serious. Well, it wasn't too long after Lauren was born. We were just having kids and, and people could have excused me. And then we had child two and we had child three. Ben, we took you up on your advice. We had child four. And here I stand before you this morning. I'm 50 years old. It seems like yesterday I was sitting at a picnic bench with that verse ringing in the back of my mind. Choose this day whom you will serve. What are you? What what am I doing about our choice for God? Maybe not even really sure what I mean by choosing God. What's it mean? Why do we choose God? What's involved in choosing God? Let me ask you a, a, some questions, and you don't have to answer out loud, but, but I do want you to be honest with yourself. I'm going to throw some questions at you. And answer these for yourself in your mind, and, we're, and I want you to hold on to those answers. These questions will help you get a handle on where you're at with that question, help you get a handle with where you're at with your choice for God. What preoccupies your heart? What rules your thoughts and your time? What controls you? What motivates you? What captivates you? What is it that takes top priority in your schedule? What is it that gives you a sense of worth? What is it that defines your identity? What would others say is the most important thing? to you how you answer those questions is going to give you a good idea where you're at with that question what are you doing about your choice for God or maybe it's making it very obvious very evident I haven't chosen God what's it mean to choose God what's involved why would we choose God Those are the questions that I grappled with at that picnic bench and have been grappling with ever since. That's why I just want to share with you from that passage the story of Joshua, the very end of the story. And you've heard me numerous times from up here telling you what a great pet peeve of mine it is when someone wants to tell me the end of a story without telling me the start of a story. And, uh, when I find myself turning a TV program and I've missed the first 15 minutes. I can't stand it, but I'm going to do it to you this morning. Because we're going to turn right to the very end of Joshua's story. It's very, very significant. And, and it's from this end of Joshua's life story that that phrase that was ringing in the back of my mind, sitting on a picnic bench at university, comes from. And it's in Joshua uh, if you turn to Joshua 23, we're just going to look at a couple of verses, and then we're going to flip to Joshua 24. As we come to the end of the book of Joshua, has anyone got that in the Pew Bible, just so we can all be turned to it? Read a, if you could read the number out. 165? So page 165. So we get to the... We get to the end of the story of Joshua. And Joshua, he's he's, he's been an assistant to Moses for 40 years. He's then led the Israelites for 25 years. They're in the promised land. He's 110 years old. He knows his time is limited. He calls all the people to give them his final words and we know how significant final words can be especially when coming from a leader so he calls all the Israelites together to give these final words and and so you might wonder well what's he going to say to them is he going to complain about all of his aches and pains and 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 maybe share with them some of the unfulfilled dreams that he had maybe he's going to brag to them brag about all of his accomplishments what does he say Well, if you look at uh, the beginning of Joshua 23, verse 1, it says, After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I'm very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord you God who fought for you. And down to verse 6. Be very strong. Be very careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Then over to chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Sarah to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea." And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you. And you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, Joshua got the people together, it wasn't to complain. It wasn't to brag. This this godly man with all of his wisdom and experience gleaned over the years challenged them with a question. You've got a choice to make. You can continue to serve God after I'm dead and gone, but you've got to choose to serve God somebody. You know, when I think back to that phrase that was going through the back of my mind on that picnic bench, it's a little bit different, the paraphrased version that I had in my head, than what Joshua actually says in verse 15 of chapter 24. And we're just going to look at these couple of verses for our time this morning. In verse 15, read it again. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And at the end he says, but for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's different in that it almost sounds like Joshua is saying to them, there's a bunch of different options. You've got to choose. You've got to serve something. So make your choice and go for it. i can't imagine joshua any more than someone who would come up before a group of people in a church like this would preach or challenge the people saying there's all sorts of choices just choose something and live your life based on that choice and yet that's what it seems joshua is saying in this verse so what is it that joshua is actually saying to them specifically in verses 14 and 15 i think there's a few things that we've got to realize The first thing, Joshua is just being brutally honest. He's acknowledging the fact that there are rivals competing for our devotion, competing for the devotion of the Israelites. He mentions them. There's there's the gods of Abraham before God called them, The, the gods the Babylonians worship. There's the gods of Egypt. When Israelite was enslaved to Egypt, Egypt was powerful. And and there was an appeal for the gods of Egypt. There's the gods of the people that they live around now. Uh, It involved a lot of cultic prostitution. Uh, There was an appeal to that for some people. And then Joshua said, and then there's Yahweh. There's all these choices. Choose whom you're going to serve. And understand this, by, by Joshua being honest and laying it all out, he wasn't saying that they were all equally acceptable. What he was doing, he was using a technique. He was laying everything out there so he could show that the right choice was the most obvious choice. Like taking someone to a buffet and saying, okay, there's where the salad is. There's where the soup is. There's where you get your bread and there's where the steak is. That's what Joshua is doing. You can, you can follow these gods or you can follow Yahweh. But Joshua's doing, doing something else in these verses. He's calling the Israelites. He was calling me on that picnic bench, and he's calling you this morning to something greater than just a verbal profession of having chosen God. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the word serve here literally implies to be fully devoted to. So Joshua, what he's saying is, choose today who you will be fully devoted to. As for me and my house, we choose to be fully devoted to God. And he qualifies that word with the word faithfulness or sincerity, depending on what translation you've got. And so what he's calling us to is a service to God that involves giving God authority, giving God control of our life. It's a call to something greater than a half-hearted commitment that characterized so many of the people that lived at Joshua's time. And, and I would say a lot of people that live today. It's about getting serious about our relationship with God. So it's a call to something greater than just a verbal profession. And what I think Joshua wants us to understand as well is this. To not serve anyone or anything is not an option. You know, we live in a time where we greatly value our dependence, in, uh, independence. We would say that we are free to live life however we want. That's what we value about Canada. We're free to make the choices that we want to make. And so we wrongly conclude from that is that we don't serve anybody or anything. But that's so far from the truth. We all serve something. We all serve somebody. At a very simple level, you know, by a show of hands, how many of you pay taxes? You all serve somebody. How many students are here? Do, do you do tests and assignments looking for good grades? Students? You serve somebody. How many of you here have a boss at work? You serve somebody. How many of you are here this morning are husbands? Hey, you serve somebody. There's a lot of husbands in trouble See, falling asleep when I'm speaking Can get you in trouble in various ways But at an even deeper level We all serve somebody or something Think back to those questions I asked earlier What preoccupies your heart? What controls your time? What takes priority in your schedule? What defines you? What gives you your sense of self-worth? What do other people say is most important to you? Whatever that answer is, that's what you serve. That's what gives you purpose. That's what's giving you meaning in life. And so we all serve somebody or something. And Joshua understood that. He knew that the Israelites had to serve somebody or something. And so he said to them, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But you have got to choose who you're going to serve. And just like the Israelites had, we too have all sorts of rivals clamoring for our devotion. We can choose to be fully devoted to God or to a God of another false religion, or we can choose to be fully devoted to the God of success or accumulation or approval of academia. The gods, with a small g, are endless. And so it seems like there's a smorgasbord in front of us. From what we, from which we can choose to be fully devoted to. Yet the Bible really simplifies things. In fact, if you remember from our last couple of messages, where we ended off in Romans, Paul says that I don't even really have to. He's talking to the people he's writing to. I don't really have to explain to you. You already know. It's common sense. You all serve something. You're all a slave to something but you're either a slave to God or you're not a slave to God. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to the world. You're either a slave to obedience that leads to righteousness and eternal life or you're a slave to sin, which leads to death. And so we have to make a choice. But why choose God? Why should the Israelites choose Yahweh? Why should they listen to Joshua and learn from his example? Blind faith just because Joshua said so? Well, Joshua doesn't expect that. I read all those verses just so you'd see that Joshua doesn't challenge them until he takes them through a stroll down memory lane. In fact, he's speaking the words of God. Seventeen times in those verses I read, we find the word I. Speaking for God... I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. I was the one who called Abraham from a land of idols and showed my grace on his life and told him that I was going to bless him and his inheritance. I was the one that rescued you from slavery in Egypt. I was the one that rescued you and delivered you from all of your enemies on the east side of the Jordan. I was the one who delivered you and rescued you from all of your enemies on the west side of the Jordan. I brought you into this land, and you didn't have to do anything to earn it. It was me. It was me. And Joshua reminds them, it's God. God has done all this for us. Think about it. Calculate it. Come to your own decision. And in verse 14, after he's told them all the things that God has done, he says this, Now fear the Lord. And serve him with all faithfulness. Fear the Lord and be fully devoted to him. In all sincerity. In all faithfulness. Reminds me of a passage. The one that Arnie read earlier. A passage that we'll eventually get to as we work our way through the book of Romans. First 11 chapters. Paul in Romans starts with this horrible sin problem we have. That there's nothing that we could do to beat it. But God could. And so God sends Jesus. And Jesus pays the price for our sin. So that God, if we accept Jesus in faith, can forgive us our sin. He can declare us innocent. We can become righteous. We can have a right standing with God. Oh, what a great salvation we have. Oh, the riches of God. What tongue can tell. And then Paul in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, now... In view of all of what I've just told you in the first 11 chapters of Romans, considering what a great salvation that we have, offer your bodies. In other words, offer your entire selves as a living sacrifice. Everything you are, everything that you have, all your dreams, all your aspirations, offer them to God. At the end of that verse, it says, why? Because it's your reasonable act of worship. It's strategic. It makes sense. After all that God has done for us, offering us the only solution to our problem of sin in Jesus, the only reasonable thing to do is offer your entire self to him. That's why. It makes sense. It's logical. It's an informed decision to choose to be fully devoted to God because of what he's done for us in and through his son, Jesus. And so what's involved in choosing God? Well, that first thing, it's an informed decision. It's not a blind leap of faith. God's laid it out before us what he's done for us. He says, here's what I've done for you. When you didn't love me, when you were my enemies, when you were hostile towards me, when you were dying in your sin, when you were powerless, when you were wicked, I demonstrated my love and I sent my son for you. And What I ask in return is that you receive that gift and that you put your faith and that you put your control and, 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 and the authority for your life in my hands because that's the reasonable response. So it calls for an informed decision. It involves an end to fence straddling. Being fully to God, voted to God is an exclusive commitment. I was reminded at the wedding a couple of weeks ago of something that I learned long before Allison and I got married. And something that I know is just as true today as it was back then. And, and for those of you who are married, you would understand this. Allison will not tolerate me having a mistress. It, it's... it's Not part of the agreement. And we understand that. But why do we expect less from God? Why do we expect less from God? I know in my own life, looking back at the 30 years since that picnic bench experience, I've become a master of finding ways of holding on to the things of the world while at the same time proclaiming that I'm fully devoted to God. Choosing God involves an end defense straddling. It also involves ridding ourselves of those things that hinder our full devotion. Being serious about sin. Refusing to make excuses. Doing everything that we have to with the power and assistance of the Holy Spirit to battle those sinful tendencies in our life. It means removing the idols from our life. And idols are just those things that we've put in God's place in our life. And I don't know what your idols are. I know what my idols are. And I'm sure if we listed all the idols in this room, it would be a long list. Now, if it's TV, a career, hobbies, pursuits, your computer, pornography, sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. It's keeping our eyes off God and hindering us from being fully devoted to God. And then finally, it involves a personal choice. I love the fact that Joshua stood in front of all of his people and said, I don't know what you've chosen. I don't know what you're going to choose, but here's my choice. And as the father of my household and as the leader of my people, I'm going to tell you my choice. As for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. We will be fully devoted to the Lord. And he had all sorts of people around him. I'm assuming that there were those who were just as fully devoted to God as he was. And to those people, Joshua would say, keep going for it. And I'm sure there are those who are listening to Joshua and going, you know what? I gave up on God a long time ago. I've turned my back on God. I'm fully devoted to the things of the world. And to them, I'm sure Joshua would say, look way back to the life of Abraham. Living in a world of idols, and, and God in his grace reached out and took him. And God in his grace will take you back. But I think the majority of the people that Joshua was talking to still really hadn't made up their final decision, hadn't really made up their choice. They're probably waffling a little bit on their choice. And to those people, Joshua said, and to many of us today, Joshua says, There are many choices. You have got to choose. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. D.L. Moody, one of the greatest pastors and preachers of the last century, said that one of the most challenging things he heard from another preacher that motivated him for the rest of his life was this. The preacher said, The world has not yet seen what God can do through a man or a woman who is truly and fully devoted to God. And Dwight Moody made it his goal in his life to be that person who could come close to being truly and fully devoted to God. You know, I think of that and I think of my experience on the picnic bench. And and I wish I could share with you that I had a success story. Because I didn't. I drifted away from InterVarsity. Uh, The biggest choice for me at university was probably who I would date. And I think of that saying that Dwight Moody shared. And with sadness, I look back at so many wasted years. So many years, as the Bible describes it, as living in spiritual adultery. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. I look back at it with sadness, but I also look back at it with great resolve. And I hope that you will share the sentiments that I feel today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.